Okay, are we on, Ken? Okay, today is, oh, we're in October, aren't we? You see the size of these calendars, that's not big enough, I still can't get it right. Okay, today is the 4th of October, 2011. Only have couple more months in October 11. Does it seem to go by faster for y'all too? Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. Have a few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, for the opportunity to be here, to feed upon it. We recognize how absolutely imperative it is for us to get that spiritual nourishment, to keep our batteries charged, to keep us moving forward. So we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I was given a little... (laughs) Newspaper article. I don't know exactly how to handle this. It's only about four sentences long. <clears throat> it, I guess, demonstrates the attitude of a lot of people towards going to church. The title says, Offenders can choose jail or church. In Bay Minette, Alabama, Authorities say nonviolent offenders in southern Alabama will have a new choice. Go to jail or go to church every Sunday for a year. WKRG-TV reports that Operation Restore Our Community begins next week. The city judge in Bay Minette will let misdemeanor offenders choose to work off their sentences in jail and pay a fine or go to church every Sunday for a year. That's just loaded. I'm wondering if <laughs> if they go to church and decide they won't jail instead, if they can do it. <laughs> you know, this could be a good thing depending on what church they go to. Of course, we don't ever, uh, it's not biblical to force someone to go to church, but still... Uh, Some of the churches, they may think it's a good deal until they go. Uh, One other thing I have that I I got in the... This was an email I received, and I thought it was pretty interesting, something I didn't know. Have you ever wondered why conservatives are called the right and the liberals are called the left? Ephesians 10... Excuse me, Ecclesiastes 10.2. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. (laughs) So that's a biblical thing. One other thing that I thought was interesting, I saw this. I don't know if you can see it. It might not be big enough, but uh, John Smith, but happens to be two of my names, 
uh, started the day early, having set his alarm clock made in Japan for 6 a.m. While his coffee pot made in China was perking, he shaved with his electric razor made in Hong Kong. He put on a dress shirt made in Sri Lanka, designer jeans made in Singapore, and tennis shoes made in Korea. After cooking his breakfast in his new electric skillet made in India, he sat down with his calculator made in Mexico to see how much he could uh, spend today after setting his watch made in Taiwan. Well, that's about it, isn't it? Okay. <coughs> now the fun is over. I have a good sense that we're going to finish Second Thessalonians review tonight. <laughs> See, I didn't say we were. I said I had a good sense. <laughs> Nobody believes me when I say these things anyway, so it just sounds good. I'm going to start here where we were on the doctrine of separation, things that we tolerate, things we do not tolerate. I'm not going to go all over this again, but I would like to make a distinction I didn't make last time, and it's one of the words here is idiosyncrasies and foibles. Last time I said the, the difference is one starts with an F and one doesn't, but uh, since then I have looked into it a little closer. And idiosyncrasies have to do with things that are uh, strange, odd, maybe even weird. These are idiosyncrasies, and foibles have more to do with faults, uh, with shortcomings of some sort. So if you have idiosyncrasies, you're on better ground than if you have foibles. I thought y'all would be anxious to hear that. Okay, now we're going to move on to verse 6. I have to scroll way up here to get the whole verse, though. But uh, you can open your Bibles. I want to make sure you have this word I'm scrolling all that way. I didn't get to the verse anyway. Uh, go to Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof, that would be separate, or withdraw from every believer, a brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. You should have that word, us, underlined, because I'm going to cover again what I did then, which is a doctrine that I really I can't remember anyone addressing, but I think it's one that is very necessary that we look into. He is separating, and he's making a distinction that if a, a brother, a fellow Christian, is leading an unruly life, <clears throat> especially this is the part that we're concentrating on now, not according to the tradition, and the tradition doesn't mean just tradition there. It leans more towards doctrine towards the doctrines which you received from us, emphasizing the us there. 
Thus refers to the Apostle Paul and those who were traveling with him who also had the spiritual gift of communicating God's Word. This was a very small, well-defined group of doctrinally sound communicators with specific teaching. And that brings up the subject of an eclectic versus humble obedience. We'll give the definition of an eclectic in just a moment. What this whole part is going to address is you understand that God has given the spiritual gift of pastor teacher to certain men and those certain men have been designated a right congregation that's one way to express it a congregation that is right for them they have the authority in the church and they disseminate doctrine but what about other communicators of the word is it wrong to listen or read or watch a DVD or something else from other men who uh, communicate the Word? Now, that's what this is going to address. And on one side, you have rationality and humility, maybe even loyalty. On the other side, you have uh, arrogance. So you have, if, if you are an eclectic, then you are not humble Part of that being an eclectic is arrogance, which we'll see. Paul didn't give the Thessalonians the right to decide for themselves who to separate from. That's the first point. The Bible never does that. It doesn't get, you, you are not the mediator of what is right and what is wrong. The Word of God is. And so it's not, you don't make that distinction on your own, and you are required when certain criteria are there certain circumstances you are commanded and required to separate but only on the criteria that the Bible gives. Their choice was to obey Paul's command or disobey it. He did not give them the prerogative to consult several other people and conclude for themselves why or from whom they would separate. When a father gives his children instructions they are not allowed to gather information from other parents friends or internet to decide what instructions they will or will or won't follow children lack the knowledge and the experience to be self-reliant so they must rely on their parents however children sometimes think they know more than their parents and are tempted to trust their own judgment now, i'm sure that doesn't come as a shock to you if you have children i know what you're saying Deep down, amen. This nearly always results in rebellion. Teenagers are notorious for this. They dispute the authority of their parents because they want to be their own authority. And we can't hardly um, disparage them too much because when we were their age, what were we? The same thing. I know when my daughter reached the age of 16, it was the toughest age because by then she knew Everything about everything. She knew it all. There was no use in uh, addressing anything with her because she already had all the answers. This nearly, nearly always results in rebellion. And they dispute the, the, the parents' authority and so forth. They want to be independent of an adult but are unable to handle the responsibility that goes with it. God has placed children under the authority of their parents. In like manner, He has placed believers under the authority of their pastor-teacher. 
they have the option to accept the teaching and the authority of their pastor or to reject it. If they reject it, they have the right to find another pastor that they can submit to. They do not have the right to undermine the pastor's authority or to form a conspiracy against him, nor does the Bible give believers the option of being an authority to themselves by creating their own theology from an assortment of opinions and teachings from a variety of sources. And what I just read you is essentially the definition of an eclectic. They pick and choose what they will agree to, what they will submit to. They are not authority-oriented. They are not grace-oriented. And <clears throat> there's a number of believers that fit that category. A lot of people think that they can ride the fence. They think that, well, yeah, I'll take some of what the Bible says and I'll take some of what the scientists say and I'll take another amount from someone else. And they put it all together and it's a big hodgepodge. And what happens is when you think that you can be the arbiter yourself, You've got it all figured out. You don't have to submit to any authority uh, and even the Bible. It might be a good guideline, but after all, you've got pretty well got it figured out. And the things that you don't necessarily agree to, those things that don't resonate with you, you'll go to another source and you'll put it all together and you'll be real happy with what you have done until it falls apart. God's Word is is connected. It's a unified system. And once you go outside of that, it's not going to work. That's the, that's the whole idea. Believers who do this become super opinionated and confused. They cannot grow beyond their own intelligence and experience because they reject the authority structure God put in place for us to learn. Most of the time when you're talking to someone, and I'm, I'm sure all of you have had this experience, especially when it gets into the spiritual realm or you're talking about the Bible, and you can tell right off that someone is, they're pretty well lost their way. They don't know what they're talking about. And whenever you go to uh, address a particular issue and it's not in accord with what they believe, they think that the way to handle that issue is raise the volume. You ever talk to those kind of people? to where they really don't have a leg to stand on. They don't know what they're talking about, but they want everyone to agree with them. If you don't agree with them, then their solution is to put more decibels into the room. And the, the more assertive they can be, the more dogmatic they are, and the more, the, the more volume, the louder they get, uh, is how they try to address any given issue. And, of course, that's not, we laugh at that. I mean, that, that's silly. Who would ever think that you're, you're going to be more right if you can be louder than the other person? If you can be more assertive and if you're banging on the, on the door, you're, you're dang, you know, your whole body language and everything is just about to scream, that doesn't have anything to do with what the issue is. You know, we need to remain calm, and sometimes that's hard to do when someone doesn't know their head from a hole in the ground and they're trying to convince you that there's no such thing as dispensationalism and they're uh, all uptight, we have to remain calm. That in itself shows that uh, you're not relying on that t 
technique or tactic. Believers who do this become super opinionated and confused. Now, it's not, there's nothing wrong with being opinionated. You should be a very opinionated person. Not just on Bible things, but everything. You should have an opinion because what you should have done is taken every issue in life and measured it against the canon of the, the canon of Scripture, which is the word. You know, canon means a measuring rod. And what we do is take that word and we measure it against everything and make our decisions based on that. So you should nothing wrong with being opinionated, <coughs> but user, <coughs> excuse me, usually when that word is used, you're talking about someone who is always right. They've got an opinion about everything. That's, that's okay. But when your opinion is always right, you're not going to listen to the other person. That's the way a lot of people become. They cannot grow beyond their own intelligence and experience because they reject the authority structure God has placed, put in place. They are in direct defiance of God's command in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your, and in context, it's talking about spiritual leaders, and submit to them. This means much more than to obey the rules and policies set forth by a church. It also means to submit to the teaching of the pastor. When one does not listen objectively with an open mind to his pastor and questions every little thing, he cannot grow. Learning requires humility and acceptance of the teacher's authority. Absent that, no learning takes place. Now, this is not to say that everything that comes out of the pastor's mouth is 100% correct. It's impossible for them to be wrong. That's not what this is saying. And any time that something is said that goes, puts an alarm off in your soul, it just doesn't go along with everything else, the, the, the structure that you have set in your soul as what is truth and what is error, what is right and what is wrong and so forth. When that goes off, you don't want to turn off your hearing and be, go into combat mode, what you want to do is just to continue to hear. Hear it out. That's what you need to do. Then after a period of time, after you've heard the whole, the whole message on, on any given issue, and you still have issues, then what you should do is go to the pastor and say something along the lines, you know, I, I just can't, get my head around this. I don't understand this. Maybe something's missing. See, we are to be good Bereans. Bereans, you remember that was in 1 Thessalonians. The Bereans went to the Scriptures when Paul came in, and he was telling them things that nobody ever heard. I mean, they were, most of the uh, times that Paul went into the synagogues, the people threw him out on his ear. Even though he was using the Scriptures, it's not how they had conducted business. It was strange to them. They wouldn't give him a hearing, and they throw him out. But the Bereans went to the Scripture, they heard what he said, and it checked out with the Scriptures, and then they submitted to his authority. And that's the way uh, any church ought to operate as well. Just because someone uh, may have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher doesn't mean that they're 100% right on. And I've, heard, I've talked to, I don't know how many uh, pastors that have gone to a, taken over a church where there was a pastor there before. It's a hard thing to do. It's like getting a new head of the family. There's a lot of adjustment to uh, go on, and what the people need to do is give him a chance. Listen to what he has to say uh, over a period of time, not just hear one message and say, well, I didn't like that. I'm out of here. 
to see if, first of all, is he accurate? Is he lining up with Scripture? Are you learning? Are you growing? But if you have this nitpicky idea, there are some people that they don't come to learn. They come to find out what, what little thing can they nitpick about. I've done messages before, and I thought they were pretty good. And someone would come up and say, well, you know, you're, you're, you missed one word in that message. You said a, a wrong, a, grammatically it was wrong. I said, oh, well, thank you. You know, I'm, I spend ten hours putting it together. I'm up till 1.30 in the morning. I've prayed about it, done everything I can. I give it my all. And they come up, and t what they got out of it was I said a, used a wrong grammatical term somewhere. Now, that's what some people... Now, just because someone says that doesn't mean that that's all they got out of it. And if I say something that is... Uh, every pastor that I've ever known, every public speaker even, will misspeak from time to time. They'll say something, it's in their head... And it doesn't come out the mouth right, and it's obviously uh, it's like a typo, a verbal typo. But sometimes there will be something said that could cause others to stumble. If that's the case, I want to know about it so I can straighten it out. I'll comment on it. I don't want it to go over the Internet that way, especially in the notes or whatever. But you, the attitude is more important than just about anything. And if a person comes to church and they're thinking, what can I catch him on today? What can I find to pick apart today? I don't think that's very prevalent in this church. It might not even exist at all. But I do know that a lot of people go to church for that reason. It makes them feel superior. It makes them feel good to nitpick someone and find a fault. Even in publications. It's hard to write something, be very proud of it, and give it to someone and say, What do you think? <laughs> I've done that before. And I'm sitting there waiting for the accolades. I'm ready for, oh, it's tremendous. And it comes back, and it really it's more like this. That takes some humility, which I don't have many, much of in those cases. I usually blow up like a big blowfish. I don't like it. You're wrong. Who are you to say? And, and I stomp about, and then when I finally cool down, I go over there and make changes. <laughs> That's just my personality. I, I, I take uh, criticism about as good as... Children take medicine. So, the attitude it should not be to find fault. There's plenty of fault. Listen, if you <coughs> if you want to come and pick apart a pastor, and you want to come and pick things apart, you're in the right place, because you can say you can you can fill up a notebook. But I will tell you this: as flawed as the delivery may be, as flawed as a lot of things may be. The message is sound. And that's the important thing. Because it's not the messenger and it's not how well it's delivered. It is the message that counts. And if you can pick apart the message, then that's when you need to address those issues. Some believers will not accept the teaching of their pastor until it is compared to the ideas and opinions of others. This attitude is, is not in accord with Hebrews 13, 17. This does not mean that believers are to blindly accept anything the pastor says. Now, some of you are more well-read than others, and 
just about anything that someone says, you can find disputed somewhere. Uh, it's always got on my nerves when people go to the Internet. You, you, you tell them, uh, uh, for instance, I don't know how many people over the years, especially before Country Bible Church was established, and they would ask me about, they'd ask me, what church do I go to? And I said, Baraka Church. When you say Baraka to someone and it has a religious connotation, they think that everybody goes there, wears a turban, probably carries a sword and uh, sacrifices goats. I mean, you don't, it's a strange word. And so they already look at you like, Barak what? Well, it's even worse today, Barak. Or, anyhow. Um, <clears throat> so I would say, well, you can go to the website. Here's the website. Who's the pastor? R.B. Theme the third. Okay. A week or two would pass, and I'd, well, did you go to the website? Yeah, I did. And you, you can tell when somebody, their tone. Uh, yes, I did. You know, I, I'm always amazed at animals. They listen to your tone. They don't know what you're saying, but they know whether it's thumbs up or thumbs down just by your body language and your tone. Well, when somebody says, yes, I did, you know, it's just monotone like that. Oh, well, you know something's the matter. Well, what, what did you think? Well, you know, I went on the Internet and I found such and such and such and such place that uh, didn't have very kind things to say about it. And uh, this is what I'm telling you. When you go somewhere on the Internet, it doesn't matter what the subject, who it is or anything else, you just keep going and you're going to find disparaging remarks. You're going to find uh, criticism. You're going to find in some places even condemnation of it. So just because you find condemnation of something somewhere on the Internet doesn't say, oh, well, let's just throw this out. You have to think independently, and we have the Word, we have the Holy Spirit. Like the Brians of Acts 17, we should make sure that what is being taught agrees with what the Bible says. That's number one. If there is a discrepancy, the pastor should be consulted. However, there, uh, this is far different from comparing what your pastor says with what other Bible teachers say who are found on the Internet, TV, radio, books, etc. Inaccuracies in what is taught is unacceptable, so consulting the Bible is essential. Consulting other teachers and opinions is not. I mean, you can, this is not saying that you can't go out and discuss different doctrines with different people. But I can tell you, even I'm talking about sound, isagogical, categorical, exegetical pastors are not in accord with everything. I don't know, and I know a lot of pastors, and I don't know one of them that we're in accord on every single doctrine. But that doesn't mean, well, I can't have fellowship with you. It, on, on certain issues, it really doesn't matter that much. Well, most of the time, it's speculation anyway. You've heard me speculate openly about the dispensation of the fullness of time. And I know some pastors that are damned about that, and they teach it, and others that are just as damned and saying, no, it's not so. And I'm being honest with you. I'm saying I'm not sure. And I'll, uh, as time passes and I get more doctrine, maybe I'll be able to shore up that I'm not so sure. But at least it's something to consider. Y'all all know what I'm talking about? 
Okay? Every pastor has a right congregation and every believer has a right pastor according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 through 3. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. I like the King James there. Not for filthy lucre. <laughs> filthy lucre sounds much worse than sordid gain to me. Most people don't know what filthy lucre is. But whatever it is, it's got to be dastardly. But with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Allotted to your charge. There is a certain allotment, a certain number of believers that God has allotted to put under a pastor's charge. What this is saying is that God did not design the local church, nor did He design the structure of you learning and growing spiritually for you to go out and say, here's some books, there's the Internet, get cracking. And, and yet, you, I would say the, the numbers are staggering of those that do that. And they say, I don't need to go to church, I can read, I've got books, I've got the Internet, I've got TV, I've got radio, I've got all these sources, what do I need to go to church for? Well, they're in direct defiance of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. God has designed it to have an authority structure. If you don't submit to authority, you can't learn. Can you imagine, where is it, the second grade, they start teaching arithmetic, and the teacher's up there and she says, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And somebody's hand goes up, yes, Johnny. And he says, uh, I don't think so. How much is Johnny going to learn? Each pastor has a flock allotted to their charge. He doesn't seek them or choose them. God does. There's no one here that I sought out and, and strong-armed you to try to get you to come to this church. That's not the way it happens. You were seeking truth. You were seeking uh Someone to teach you so that your soul will be fed this spiritual nourishment. And God does the choosing. He connects the right pastor to the right congregation. And these are the sheep that he is responsible for, and these are the sheep that are submit to his authority. This is not to imply that believers can only learn doctrine from their right pastor, emphasizing that. I'm not the only person that you can learn doctrine from. There are others. And no pastor or theologian has cornered the market on truth. Doctrinal pastors are not in competition with each other. They are on the same team. Believers can learn from more than one doctrinal pastor, but they must be very careful who they listen to. False teachers can be very attractive and knowledgeable, Many people are fooled by their impressive credentials, great speaking ability, and huge numbers of people following them. Much of what they say may be true, but remember that they are experts at concealing false doctrines and lies. Believers who have not mastered the basics of systematic theology should not venture away from their own pastor's teaching, at least not at first. 
stick with that pastor, whoever they are, that is teaching you fundamental doctrines before you even start to think about going out and comparing and actually shopping, you might say. I'm always amazed at how important numbers are to people. Now, the big mega churches, they push that. Boy, do they ever push it. They push the fact that, well, we've got uh, 30,000 people here and we've got 14 buses and we've got uh, 2,200 on our staff. We've got a choir of 400 and uh, they just go on and on. Well, you know, that's fine. I mean, that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong in that it's in itself. But I have found that there's a um, somewhat of a a measuring rod. It's just a something that I I do. It's a unofficial formula. Let me put it that way. The bigger the church, the less the doctrine. Usually, not always. And the reason that's so is because people aren't really hungry for doctrine. They want to be groomed and stroked and, and, and uh, cooed over. They want to uh, have their uh, sensibilities not offended. They want to go somewhere where they're told how great they are. They want the programs. They want the excitement. They want the entertainment. They want the sensational. But what they don't want is the day after day, week after week, grind it out theological teaching that's going to get them to where they really need to be spiritually. And that's why there's so many huge megachurches. And that's why most of them don't teach doctrine. If those big megachurches, not all of them, but most of them, if the pastor said, okay, uh, we're going to start with Romans chapter 1 and I'm going to start exegeting this verse, we're going to pick it apart, we're going to go into the Greek we're going to go into the etymology of the words. We're going to go into the isagogics of it, the historical uh, context. And before he even got that out of his mouth, people would be cutting their eyes over at the doors. What happened? Where's the, where's the music? Where's the sensational everything? So numbers, numbers doesn't mean anything. Now, we, we would like to have more numbers here. But not that we could strut around and not that it would convince any of you that you can be sure that this is the right place to get truth because look at our numbers. In fact, just the opposite is probably true. And yet when you talk to someone and they say, where do you go to church? And you say, country Bible church. And of course, they've never heard of it. I think they've already pretty well figured it out. It's not a mega church. I never heard of mega church being called country Bible church. So they're already uh, assessing that this isn't a very important church because uh, you have only, what, 100, 150? <laughs> we have that many secretaries at our church. You get the idea of what I'm saying. Just because someone has numbers and they are well-read, uh, they, they have a great vocabulary and they speak great, and you compare them with your country pastor that likes to throw in some, um, I don't know what to call it. See, that's, I'm, I'm at a, uh, my vocabulary is lacking. I know what I'm thinking, but I can't put it into words. 
uh, colloquial, maybe uh, uh, colloquialisms. How about that? Huh? Um, so that's not that's not what determines whether a church is right on or not. You know what determines whether a church is right on or not? Do they teach the word and do they teach it accurately? That's what it's all about. Paul was not averse to having others minister to his flock as long as they were doctrinally sound. Now, this is an important verse here. This is the Bible underscoring the fact that you can learn from other pastors, other communicators of the Word, if indeed they are sound. Galatians 4.17, They, referring to false teachers, eagerly seek you, not commendably. That is, through lies and deceptions. They have an ulterior motive. But they wish to shut you out. That means apart from Paul's ministry. Everywhere Paul went, he would teach doctrine and the Judaizers would come right behind him. Say, well, Paul is just a tent maker. He doesn't have the credentials. You can't pay any attention to him. Look at us. Look at the clothes that we wear. Look at, look at, at the, the diplomas that we have. Look at how many people are following us. Look at our treasury, how much money we have. And they would try to turn them away from Paul. So that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to shut them out apart from Paul's ministry in order that you may seek them, that is, the false teachers. They had approbation lust and money lust. But that conjunction changes everything. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. That means by doctrinally sound teachers. And not only when I am present with you. So when Paul was away, he said it's absolutely fine to get doctrine from another doctrinally sound pastor. In fact, he calls it good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And the commendable manner is for the right purpose, the right reason, which is teaching accurate Bible doctrine. We have DVDs in our church library from various conferences with several different doctrinally sound speakers who have been approved by this pastor. There are newsletters like the Brian Call magazine and like Israel My Glory that are doctrinally sound that keep up with the current events and offer the biblical perspective. I'm always telling you, I have one right here, Israel My Glory. If you don't get it, why don't you? It is tremendous. Brian Call, the same thing. It's free. This isn't free, but I just had a, a list back there that for I think there was 10 or 12 names. All you had to do was sign your name on there and get a full year's free subscription of the Israel My Glory. And it took about three weeks for that to be filled up. should have been filled up right away. should have been standing in line to get that. Other pastors, missionaries, and doctrinally sound men have filled the pulpits at CBC at various times. There are still good doctrinally sound communicators of God's Word who are edifying, but there is only one pastor that was designated by God to be your right pastor to whom you are required to submit. Now, that doesn't mean I go in... I, my authority is limited. It has mainly to do with the exegesis and the communication of God's Word, but it also has to do with setting policy for the church, 
the way that God has designed the local church is the pastor is the head of the church. And so it has to do with that. But more than anything, it has to do with understanding that I can't learn unless I accept someone's authority to teach. And you will know over a period of time whether it's a fit or not. And I don't say I'm the only one you can listen to. You can't learn doctrine from anybody but me. I'm not saying that. That would be in disagreement from where I take it. Galatians 4, 17 and 18. That's why we have the DVDs back here from the different conferences. If you get those DVDs and put them in the player and watch them, you're going to learn. These are great conferences. I'm already signed up to go uh, to the conference in Dallas, the pre-trib conference. This will be about my fifth time to go. And every time I go, I learn more. Iron sharpens iron. And we talk and we discuss and we analyze and we look at it from different points of view, different perspectives. Other pastors, missionaries, and doctrinally sound pastors have feel this and I think for the most part has done a good job. We don't have much time left and I am going to finish tonight, so let me put it in high gear. Iconoclastic arrogance. How many of you heard that? This is verse 7. Let's look at verse 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know that you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. So iconoclastic arrogance, let me just put it. He says, for you yourselves know you ought to follow our example. Um, iconoclastic arrogance means that you make an icon out of someone. It's, it's normal to, and it's good to have respect for someone, uh, maybe to revere someone, but you don't worship them. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible, of history, and of our lives. And for some, if you put someone on a pedestal, make them an idol, they're going to... They're going to um, make you unhappy. They're going to disappoint you because we are all just people with an old sin nature that have feet of clay. Don't make me the issue. I'm saying this especially because uh, our 20th anniversary is coming up here in a, a next month, and it's not about me. It's about the faithfulness of the Lord in providing for this church all this time. And I'm just fortunate enough to have been able to go along for the ride. And I have memories and I have treasures in my soul that go along with those 20 years. But it's not to glorify me, it's to glorify the Lord. And that's what I want the centerpiece to be on. I think it's going to be a great time. I have people that I haven't seen in... Uh, uh, 10, 15 years that have been invited. I hope they come. I'd like for you to meet them because there have been some great people that have been here and they've moved away and gone to different places and so forth. I'm anticipating it as being a very special and a wonderful day. But the day is not about me. It's really not even about this building. It's about the faithfulness of the Lord. So that has my little piece on iconoclastic arrogance. Then verse 10 
For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Look at this. The importance of each believer being self-reliant, and this would be, I'm going to put it right here. I saw it on another form of this, left out this word, not being a burden on someone else. Look at these statistics. Here's some uh, headlines. Growing welfare state. In the U.S., the number of people on food stamps in November 2010, which was a year ago, was 43,595,000. percent of the population on food stamps is a little over 14%. Year-over-year increase on percent of population on food stamps, 1.8. That figures out to about 5,400,000 and uh, close to 12,000. Uh, 5,412,000 more every year. And I think that that's optimistic. That's a, a, it'll probably be a lot more than that as time goes by. L.A. County alone spends $600 million on welfare for illegal immigration. That's for illegal immigration, L.A. County, uh, $600 million. There was a proposition that they, the people said, we don't want to fund this anymore. One federal judge said, no, you can't do that, and so now they're paying $600 million taken from the taxpayers to, feel the, uh, to fund these illegal immigrants. Is welfare scriptural? Such biblical welfare stands opposed to government welfare. This is by Larry Burkett. He'd already explained what biblical welfare is. Biblical welfare are churches, family, and Christians uh, filling in the gap for those who are uh, handicapped, those who are uh, legitimately poor. Legitimately means they cannot fend for themselves and so forth. So he says, such biblical welfare stands opposed to the government welfare, which Burkett believes has disastrous effects. He observes, once the government got involved in social programs, welfare became a political tool the effects of government welfare are almost the opposite of the effects of biblical welfare listed above. And the results will be permanent dependence and poverty. With the best intentions, our welfare system traps people at the lowest economic level by indiscriminate giving. Welfare spending since 1970 on social welfare has risen 127% to a staggering annual total of $331.4 billion for our federal, state, and local governments. That's nearly $1 billion a day for welfare. It has outstripped just about all other outlays. Defense spending was greater than social welfare costs in the mid-1950s. Now it's only one-fourth as big as welfare. It leaped 20.6% of uh, the gross national product. It leaped to that figure, getting close to a fourth. I'm not going to go into this so much, uh, verse 11 and 12. Remember, this is a review. I would never go that fast teaching this, but this is just reviewing. If you look at verse 11 and 12, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. 
Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work out or to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. In verse 12, when it's saying, excuse me, verse 11, when it says, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, it's, it's a play on words. Uh, Godsmanus means not busy. Then you have Allah, which means but. Then you have peri ergodzimanus, which means busy being a busybody. So what they're busy at is being a busybody. Verse 13, do not grow weary of doing good. Verse 13, do not grow weary of doing good. I think this last part is a good way to end 2 Thessalonians with these verses right here. There's a couple of verses I want you to... Make note of these because one of the most common detractors and hindrances of people reading, uh, uh, reaching spiritual maturity is to grow weary. To grow weary of coming to Bible class. To grow re- weary of doing good. And look at Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. There we do, therefore, we do not lose heart. What does that mean? We do not go, we do not get weary. We do not fade. But though our outer man is decaying, and there's not a person here where our outer man is not decaying. Uh, we can hide it. We can, ladies can cover it up marvelously. We're, we're glad of that. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> every time I get... I'll get bogged down. I need, I'm trying to say something good, and it doesn't come across that well. But the, 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 the point is, all of us, our bodies are decaying. They're getting worse. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed. How often? Day by day. And if it's not being renewed, day by day, then the inner man is decaying. And the way that it is renewed is by what you're doing right now. You're getting in the Word. You're focusing on the spiritual things. You're taking in doctrine. And then he talks about the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension or comparison. The the, the things that we face that, that bring us down, that we think are hard, when we endure, when we don't fade, we continue to think divine viewpoint, we continue to get doctrine, we continue to grow, we continue to faith rescue, We continue to trust the Lord. When we do that, when we get to heaven, what we're going to say is, you mean we get all of this for just that little thing we did down there? That's what this verse is saying. All of this. Boy, it's beyond comparison. So the light affliction we're going through here, and by the way, when he says light affliction... He suffered probably more than everybody in this room combined times ten. And he calls it light affliction. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hebrews 10, 35-39 Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. Confidence in what? Confidence that if you stay the course, you continue to grind, you continue to grow, you continue to 
Avail yourself of all the grace that God has provided for you. Don't throw away that confidence. That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants it. Why go to Bible class again tonight? How many times? How many? How many times have you gone? It won't hurt if you miss tonight. It won't hurt if you miss the next night. It won't hurt. It, nothing's going to change. It's all going to be all right. Just do what you. You got things that you need to do. He's going to try to put your priority structure off course and make something other than God and His Word number one priority in your life. And when He does that, you're had. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. Those great promises. If it wasn't for the promises, I wouldn't be here. Would you? If God said, there's really nothing in it for you, just be as moral as you can. We're all going to the same place. There's no difference. I mean, you In verses 14 through 15, we again have the doctrine of separation, which I'm not going to go over again. You've got it in spades through this review. Verse 16, it's impossible for believers to have peace in every kind of circumstances. It is possible, excuse me. Uh, it is something that Christ gives to those who are in the process of growing in grace and knowledge. Verse 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. What that does not mean is that you're not going to have anything but good circumstances from now on. But what he can promise you is peace in every kind of circumstance. And you cannot have that apart from thinking divine viewpoint and having doctrine circulating in your stream of consciousness where you're right at the ready that you can apply it. You get rid of all that stinking thinking of human viewpoint. And then the last verse, verse 18, Paul is saying that he wrote this himself. The reason he wrote at least this last part is because they would know that this actually came from him because they had received, if you remember, a forgery, a forged letter saying that the day of the Lord had already come and uh, they got pretty upset over that and I think rightly so. Okay, look what's left. Nothing. That concludes our study of First and Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians Review and Second Thessalonians Review. What I feel like doing is say, now we're going to review it again. <laughs> but we can't do that. Now, you, you have to study to show thyself approved, and that means that you need to... Um, Go over these things yourself. When you have a question, when you want to be sharp, you use your time to go over the notes, go over the visuals, go over all these things. There's some pretty neat visuals in First and Second Thessalonians. They tell a lot. You, sometimes you can just go to the visuals and go through it in your mind. What is this saying? Connecting all the dots, and that will help you stay fresh. We will start on a new, altogether different something Thursday night. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time and the privilege and honor of going through these two epistles that are so important for us. Uh, some people think that eschatology is real, really not important, but apart from your promises and the eschatological impact, we would have no 
personal sense of eternal destiny. It keeps us moving forward. It keeps our confidence up. We're so thankful for your word and how it motivates us and gives us hope. That is confidence. So we pray that even though we have finished these epistles, they won't vanish from our mind, that we will continue to meditate on them and think about them, and that they will be a great benefit as we move forward to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.